You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. This is a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series, where I interview women attorneys and law firm owners about their career path and their experience as an entrepreneur, including why they became a lawyer, how their practice has evolved, their biggest challenges and successes as both attorneys and business owners, and their vision for the future. They share their philosophies about business and life. Don't reinvent the wheel. Whatever you're going through, these ladies have been there and done that already. Learn from their mistakes and from their successes. Find out what works for them and what didn't. And you'll find that their inspiration, motivation, and challenges are probably very similar to your own. Whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. I hope you enjoy these ladies' stories. Hey, everybody. This is Wake Up Called the Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previn, and joining me today for another edition of the Hashtag FemSquire series is Allison Williams. And just in case she needs an introduction, she is the founder and owner of the Williams Law Group. She's also the law firm mentor, mentoring other fabulous attorneys how to run a thriving, successful, and profitable law firm. And if that's not enough, she's also the host of Crushing Chaos, a podcast for all of her um, her followers. <laughs> specifically for people that would like to know how to run their law firms better so that they can have a Williams Law Group one day. Did I get that right? I think you got that right. Even though I do like to tell people the podcast is the Crushing Chaos with Law Firm Mentor podcast because there is actually another Crushing Chaos podcast out there. Really? Yeah, which I didn't know when I named myself. And luckily, I named myself in a way that didn't conflict with her name. But yeah. Well, guess what? There's another wake up call podcast out there because I wasn't very creative when I came up with that name. There's like a million other ones, but whatever. Okay, you've got the best one. Thank you, Allison. I appreciate that. So you've agreed to give me 90 minutes of your time. I know, and I don't even have to pay for it. Let's not spread that around. So I do like to start out with the same question for my fem squires. Where did you go to college and what did you think that you were going to be when you grew up? <laughs> okay. So I went to Florida State University for both undergrad and graduate school. And by the time I got to college, I knew I was going to be a lawyer. I didn't really have a thought when I was growing up as a kid of, oh, this is what I want to be when I grow up. I kind of toyed around with the idea of being a writer because I always loved to write but I thought that would be boring and not enough change and, and that sort of thing. So I got to high school and I ended up having the assignment of cross-examining Christopher Columbus <laughs> and <laughs> the rest is history. Well, do you remember that cross-examination? <laughs> I do, but I'll, I'll do, but not because I was so great at it. I'll tell you why I remember it. We, um, we had an interesting group in my American history class. So I took for the most part, honors, gifted, dual enrollment courses in high school. So I, you know, I was, I was academically inclined. 
And but my American history class conflicted with jazz band if you if I wanted to do the advanced placement uh, American history. And so it just it couldn't work. They weren't going to move band for me. <laughs> so and I played in both the marching band and the jazz band. I loved music. So I said, all right, well, I have no choice but to take regular American history. So you had kids in there that were smart kids and then you had kids that were barely getting out of high school. And so one of those barely out of high school kids was in my group and he just, he didn't care about school at all. And he was charged with being, um, being the king. I'm trying to remember the exact lingo, but he essentially was the king that preceded Christopher Columbus. And so to delay getting to Christopher Columbus, we were going to cross-examine the king and the king didn't speak English. So <laughs> I was to start asking him questions and he was then to start mumbling in some nondescript language. And so that did not go over well with our history teacher. He was like, this was your day. Uh, this was your day. We're like, well, this is court. <laughs> this is what happens in court. Continuances happen in court. I at least knew that much. And uh, so we, we got away with that little stunt and I got away with cross-examining someone who didn't speak English long enough to get me a continuance so that Christopher Columbus, who wasn't quite ready with his part, could get an extra day. And there you have it. <laughs> so the genesis of your legal career right there. Yeah, there you have it. Trickery, deception, manipulation, all that fun stuff. Yeah, wow. Like a, like a real soap opera. And I have to ask you, I know I've known you over the years and I knew there was a Florida connection, but didn't exactly know what that was. Did you grow up in Florida? Yeah, I was I was born and raised in Pensacola, Florida. So Tallahassee, uh, where Florida State is located, is only three hours away. And uh, I was a shy kid when I was in high school. So going away to college was something I knew I had to do. I wasn't given the choice by my parents, but it was also something I was scared of. So I said, well, I'll go away, but not away, away. I'm not going to leave the state. I'm not going to leave the region, but you know, it's away, right? Well, I feel like you've grown out of that, but you know what? Sometimes people are shy and you just don't know that they're shy. Would you say you're still shy? I wouldn't say I'm still shy. I'm, I'm still very much an introvert and there is a difference. Uh, so, and I tell people this all the time, you know, introvert versus extrovert versus ambivert is about energy. And so I am much happier on a stage in front of a thousand people where there's a distance and I'm not directly engaging than in a cocktail party with 15 people, because the, the time and energy that it takes for me to, to move from conversation to conversation, to be intently focused on a person and to try to socially engage that, that is very taxing to me. Uh, so I'm still very much an introvert, but I'm not shy anymore. I can pretty much talk to anybody about anything. I'm exactly the same way. And I, you're right. Most people don't really know what an introvert and an extrovert really is about. They think, because I'll say I'm an introvert and they'll just laugh hysterically rolling on the floor like, <laughs> oh, stop it. I've never seen you be, you know, shy or shy away from a confrontation or a debate ever. And it's, you know, then I have to educate them. <laughs> Well, yes, everybody needs a good education. Yes. So I absolutely can relate to that. And I think also people would say about you, there's no way she's shy. She's not an introvert. But again, they don't really get what it means. Um, so I can absolutely relate to that. Yeah. So what, when, how did you get over your shyness? You just grew well, out of it? So, you know, this kind of, this conjures up a whole bunch of stuff. Um, it wasn't like an intentional sort of thing. I, I really expected when I was going to law school that I was going to be a corporate lawyer 
and I expected to be in an office reviewing documents. You know, I actually wanted to be the lawyer in the office reviewing the documents. And what happened was I went to law school and fell in love with employment law. And I really wanted to do labor side management employment uh, law because I really felt like there was there were legitimate concerns on the part of employees and there were legitimate opportunities to improve the life of a company through management. And whether that be the life of the employees, the life of the management, like I just felt that management was skewed with kind of a, a, a protectionist stance that oftentimes was harmful to both sides. So that was what my path was. And then I got a job working for the EEOC and they rescinded my offer right before I graduated. So I ended up uh, being a family law clerk, because in the summer of my second year of law school, I ended up, or my first year of law school, I ended up working for a judge in the court system, really just so I could get that legal research and writing experience. And it was in family law. So once you have it on your resume, it's kind of like, oh, this person knows something about family law, even though New Jersey and New York are quite different. Uh, I was at Syracuse for law school. So that's where I had my, my legal experience. But Anyway, I got, a, I got a job in family law here in New Jersey and the rest is history. But through that process, family law is it's a very clicky area. It's a very social area. Um, there is a certain trauma that you experience as a lawyer in general, but particularly when you're dealing with people that are not just in distress, but people that are in emotional um, and oftentimes psychological and depending on the issue, substance or psychiatric distress. And we deal with that all day, every day. So if you don't have a good collegial relationship with your colleagues, you're, you're, you're that much more sucked into the drama of your clients. So almost out of just a natural happenstance through the practice area that I chose, it was necessary for me to engage with people. So I think it started to kind of erode a little bit, the shyness, just because it was, I had to be with people so much that I kind of learned to be with people. But if I'm candid with you, I never really got over it. And it was very challenging for me. And then I found the apple martini and (laughs) (laughs) the apple martini was my best friend because uh, the apple martini made it so much easier for me to engage with people until I realized that I was engaging with the apple martini when I had nothing to do with people. I was just in love with the apple martini and it didn't quite love me as much as I loved it. So we had to part ways. In January of 2012, we parted ways permanently, no more alcohol, but you know, that's kind of, I I love the way you just explained all of that. (laughs) (laughs) I know most people don't talk about alcoholism, alcoholism from the perspective of falling in love with a martini, right? No, but I mean, it's, it's kind of true, right? Definitely. (laughs) And so I did want to touch on that at some point, but since you brought it up, do you feel like, um, you know, some people develop alcoholism or if they have any kind of addiction issue early in life. So how old were you when you began this love affair with the apple martini? So it was about 2007. Uh, so at that time, I was 29 years old. So you were, I mean, certainly not old, but you, it wasn't like you were 20. Right. And and. What's unusual is that I didn't drink when I was a kid. I, I was, I wasn't, um, I, I wasn't a puritanical kid. Like I went out with my friends and I was kind of the designated driver. I was, I was fine being a part of the of the crowd that also drank, but I just I didn't like it. 
<laughs> Honestly, I was like, this is like powerful tasting. It's potent. It's a little too strong. It burns my throat. Like I don't, I don't enjoy it. And then when I found the apple martini, and I'm, I'm, I say that jokingly, but somewhat seriously that, ah, this tastes good. This tastes like something sweet and, and, you know, it just happens to have a little aftertaste of an elixir, which I honestly did not recognize how potent the alcohol was because I was usually drinking after a long day of work. And I, at that time in my life, I was not really conscious about eating. I've always had a weight problem. I had lost a lot of weight, but I wasn't not eating to lose weight. I was just so busy that I wasn't eating. So I'd get up in the morning and I usually grab something quick from Dunkin' Donuts to have something to munch on. And then I came to the office, worked for a few hours, went to court, worked for a few hours and didn't eat while I was working because I, I always found it distracting to eat while I was with a client. So I'd be advising them over lunch, whether they ate or not, because we are dealing with whatever. And by the time I got back to the office, I then had a stack of stuff that happened that had accumulated throughout the day while I was at the office. So I didn't usually leave the office until six or seven. And if I went to a, a bar dinner or a night networking event, the first thing I had was a cocktail when I got there after not having eaten all day. So it had a particularly um, significant impact on me. And I didn't realize at that point that, you know, one, not being conscious of how my physiology was responding to alcohol made it that much easier for me to be out of awareness, right? So if you're, if you're used to drinking when you're, you know, having a regular amount of food in your system, there's a certain effect that it has. If you're used to drinking alcohol in an empty stomach, stomach there's, a, there's a different effect. So I started to have that craving for that different effect, which was much more powerful, which meant I had to drink a lot much faster in order to have that same feeling that was really a feeling, and I didn't think about it at the time, but it really was kind of a, a, an emotional sedation like that, you know, if you have anxiety, you know, you've kind of got that, like, that running theme in your head, that little man in your head that's like going 5,000 miles a minute. That man slowed down when I put alcohol in my system. And yeah. it made me feel as if I could be with other people because I felt normal. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's interesting that you recognize that because a lot of people that have had addictions to different things like alcohol or drugs, marijuana or other things, they're in a way they're self-medicating and they actually don't even realize that they are doing that. Yeah, I didn't realize it at the time. I mean, that was absolutely what I was doing because the alcohol and I didn't know why at the time, but it made me feel confident, right? There was, the, yeah. there was a... a it was almost like, and you know, when you, when you don't have a positive self-image, when you have low self-esteem and you don't think highly of yourself, and then other people are telling you things that are flattering, you don't believe it. So you, you, kind, of, you kind of have this story running that these people are just saying these things because they're, they want to be nice, or they're trying to build up my self-esteem so that I'll be more of the person that they're describing me to be. So I later learned and kind of realized that people actually thought highly of me. But I thought at the time, because I was in a law firm where I was surrounded by lawyers that were very successful, um, I was not used to being at the bottom of the food chain. I was not used to being at the bottom of a hierarchy and having to prove myself. And then on top of that, I went from North Jersey down to South Jersey. So all the North Jersey tactics, which were much more like New York City, they were very aggressive, they were very confrontational, very adversarial, very litigious. 
I went down the shore and everybody's like, what's wrong with you? Why are you fighting mm-hmm. like this? And then you, you mask that in the whole angry black woman stuff. And <laughs> so it's like, okay, you're just, you're just mean. And I'm like, this is how I was taught to lawyer. So I just, I had a lot of self-image issues. And as soon as I got alcohol in my system and could just talk to people and it was easy, it was like, why would I ever give this up? Like now this is the thing that's going to get me to that social butterfly that I'm supposed to be in order to be successful as a lawyer. And of course it didn't get me there. Um, It got me into rehab. (laughs) but it didn't get me into social awareness. And then eventually it got me to just say, I can't use that. So I can't use anything. So I have to find the right strategy and public speaking was my strategy to really, you know, explode my career. So something you said about your self-esteem, I want to delve into a little more because anybody who knows you as I've known you for many years now, when, as soon as you meet you, and this isn't just today, this was as long as I've known you. And I don't even remember when we met. I had to be. I remember where we met. The first time we met in person, I was in court in Hunterdon County and I saw you and I won't say your adversary, but I saw your adversary, somebody I know very well. And you two were like going at it. I was like, I gave her that argument. And I was sitting in the back and I was like rooting for you. And then uh-huh. like, you got done. Like you, we, we saw each other in the hallway. And I was like, yeah, hi. And you did a great job. It was that. Yes, that was, that yes. Was <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you were there. I remember when you were there. Thank you for rooting for me. And yes, I know who you're talking about. We won't say any names. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's not. <laughs> Someone who can be a little difficult at times. So, um, yeah. So, so what the point I'm trying to make is that anybody who met you then or now, you always immediately come across as an incredibly strong woman, confident, incredibly intelligent, um, knows your shit, you know, doesn't just know it a little bit. Like if you're going to court with Allison Williams, you better show up. Okay. You better have done your homework. You better know what you're talking about. You better know your file. And I, and even all of this is probably an understatement. So for you to say that you had self-esteem issues to me is really surprising. And I think to, would be to other people who know you because mm. You kind of think, but how? How could she not know how amazing she was and is? So I find that most lawyers have self-esteem issues, candidly. And what what's interesting is that, you know, the more you understand about a person's psychology, the, the more you can get to the heart of the fact that self-esteem is never going to be definitively determined by people that look confident or people that look, you know, weak and tepid, Right. Because there are some people that if you watch their body language, they might have hunched over shoulders, they might have a soft tone, they might have a very acquiescent personality, the way that they speak. And then if you ask them about a certain part of their life, they feel very confident. Like there's kind of a quiet confidence that runs through them. There are other people that are very bombastic and they have a very large presence and they project themselves as the expert in all things. And those people are oftentimes the ones that feel the least about themselves, because if you think about it, why else do you need to puff and puff and blow your house down? Because even the lawyers that are putting on the show for the client or putting on the show because that's how they want to persuade an adversary or a judge that they that they believe in their position, right? That's kind of what you're doing. You're you're I firmly believe this and therefore you should firmly believe it, too. A lot of that is still not 
pomposity. It's not. It's not. It's not a a hyper masculinity. It's not aggression. The people that kind of err toward that are almost always broken and fractured inside. And so when people would say things like like what you just said, which is how I could have never guessed that about you. Of course you couldn't, because initially I worked very hard at play acting, right? Watching the people that presented in a way that I wanted to present and just copying and pasting, right? I'm a young lawyer. I don't know how to lawyer. And I didn't feel good enough to just figure it out on my own. So I had to study. And I was I was very vigilant early on in my career, just like, you know, I, we refer to young lawyers as baby lawyers. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a baby lawyer, babies learn the most, right? Babies have the most capacity to absorb. So I'm sitting in the courthouse and I'm taking notes. And I literally would just watch people that I was impressed with. And I would take notes about how they presented all the time. Okay, this is how they had their hands. This is where they put their shoulders. This is how they use their body. This is how they project their voice. And I would practice in front of a mirror. Like it was very important to me when I was younger because I felt so bad about myself to positive impression manage myself into looking successful. So I did that. And in that area, I was faking it until I made it. And at some point, once I realized, and I didn't actually realize it until I got fired from a job and people were like, oh, you, of course you're going to go out on your own. I was like, oh no, I couldn't possibly do that. That's like what, what real lawyers do. Like I still had that. I'm not good enough. I couldn't possibly mindset. And I, it, the number of people that reached out to me and said something to the effect of how could you possibly not think that you could do this? Like doofus down the road is doing this. <laughs> you can do this. That I, that I started to think, yeah, you, you know, I, okay. Yeah. I won 38 trials last year. Yeah. Okay. I guess I can kind of do this. Right. And that's when the, 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 the extra started to calm down a little bit. And I was just, confident, but I was only confident in that area of my life. I wasn't confident in my relationships. I wasn't confident. Uh, to some degree, I was confident in my friendships because I you know, genuinely connected with people, but I wasn't confident as a person. I was confident in the role that I was occupying that I had learned enough about to feel like I had learned the role. So you wouldn't walk into a room full of people and, and, and just feel like I'm totally at ease here whoever I talk to, they're going to like me. I'm, they're going to think I'm interesting. No, that's probably been like the last two to three years. Wow. Now I can walk into a room and not have a intuitive confidence, but there's not a, there's not a, a, a lack feeling. There's not a, a less than feeling and there's not a, I'm not good enough feeling, but there is still not the, like some people just believe in themselves from their core toes to, to, you know, tip of the head everything about me is fabulous and who would not want to engage with me. I don't have that. And I don't know that I will ever have that. And that's okay. But I love the person that I am now. So that is, that's the distinction. That's huge progress. I mean, so, you know, and you said something earlier that a lot of lawyers have these feelings of inferiority and it's not just lawyers. You know, I've been reading a lot of other books. Um, a book called Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock comes to mind. I don't know if you've heard of that book mm-hmm. um, where she talks about how most of us are just walking around all the time feeling completely unworthy. Mm-hmm. And I haven't finished the book yet, so I don't really know how the, the conclusion. But I know that you have spent a lot of uh, time working on yourself and um, with coaches and personal development and reading. And I want to talk more about that. But 
for you, what do you think that was the core of that? Where, where was that lack of self-esteem coming from? So, so here's the thing. I, this is kind of how I talk to my lawyers about this, my lawyer clients. You know, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We all have those basic needs of physiological need, you know, security, love, self-esteem, self-actualization, and connectivity with others, right? So we have these various different parts of ourselves that are a part of the human psychology. Where I think, you know, it, the breakdown happens is, you know, self-esteem is not something that just, it, it starts in the child, right? But it isn't something that our society is designed to keep you growing in. If you really think about it, the whole idea of connecting with other people is being like other people, but there's only so much likeness that any person can create with other people and still be authentically who they are. So if you're not in the environment with people that are who you are, how you are from birth, and we know that most people would say that they're not the, the, the carbon copy of their mom or their dad or their brother or their sister. They are a composite of their preferences, their likes, their desires, their dreams, which oftentimes are completely dissimilar to their families. Even if they don't, you know, they grow up and create a life that's very similar to mom and dad. They didn't necessarily do that because they genuinely desired that. That's what they knew. So if you start off looking at a lens of people or looking through a lens of people that are seeing you through their eyes, they're seeing you a certain way and they're acculturating you in a certain way that's not consistent with who you are. So in order to fill the pattern of the people who are raising you, you inherently have to be something that you're not. And then you have an incongruence in yourself that says, I'm supposed to be married with kids and, you know, working, working at the local, um, at the local nursery, or I'm supposed to be, you know, a high powered executive who has a wife and children and is, you know, my wife stays home with the kids and I live in a certain household. And those are the stories that are running in your head and you don't desire those things or you desire them, but you haven't been able to create them for whatever reason, you're always going to feel a disconnect with who you are. So if you take that kind of big picture and you know, dial it down to things as simple as, you know, I desire music and my parents are teaching me um, academics or I desire to run and play and jump. And I'm being taught uh, to read and study and uh, accumulate then you're always going to be at a, at a place of, of cognitive dissonance within yourself. And I think that dissonance over time erodes the fabric of who a person truly is at the soul level. So if I can ask you, because I know this is personal, did, can you tell us what, what was the idea of, that you had to be because it came down from your family versus who you felt like you really were? Well, so that's an interesting question. I would say that, you know, my parents were always intellectually at the you can be all you can be level. But I think what was what was always competing within myself was that I was always a loving person and I always wanted love around me. I wanted friends, family. I wanted a partner. I wanted all of these things that would give me a feeling of love. But I had like two very conflicting stories about love for who I could be. And it was impossible for me to be loved in that, in that story. So the first story was my parents told me, be all you can be. You're supposed to uh, graduate from high school, go to college, get a graduate degree. And yes, graduate degree was just as necessary as college degree in my household. I was supposed to get a career. I was supposed to make a lot of money, be successful, blah, 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 blah. 
Then you add the additional layer of I'm supposed to do all these things, not just for me, but for all black people everywhere, right? I owed it to them to be successful. So I had that extra pressure and I had to do that in order to get love from my parents. So whenever I was not making straight A's, not studying, not caring about my grades, not pursuing whatever the next achievement was, they didn't say we don't love you, but they withdrew that emotional support and those girls that they were giving me that would have told me I was doing the right thing. So I learned the lesson, this is not how a person behaves if they want to be loved. So on a very deep level, when I'm not seeking pursuit of achievement, I feel a lack of love. On the flip side, the verbal message that I got was really from my parents' relationship. So my parents are now married 50 years. They're still happily married in lovely Pensacola, Florida. But my mother is a genius. And my mother, in the time that she grew up, said the women were supposed to be teachers, nurses, and secretaries. That's it. <laughs> so the fact that she graduated from college at, you know, at 19 years old and, and had two science degrees and got a job working as a science researcher when she came back home, yeah, 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 that's what you do until you get married. Okay, great. Here's a guy that comes along. You're supposed to be a good wife, be a good mother. You're supposed to make less money than your husband so he can feel like a man. That's particularly important if you have a Black husband because of the world's view toward Black men. So be all you can be was the message that I got on the soul level of love. And be less than your husband was the message that I got from my parents. So that meant, great, I can have love in my life as long as I marry a millionaire. Well, there aren't a whole lot of millionaires running around. <laughs> yeah. And all that time that I'm taking pursuing, you know, collecting degrees, collecting awards, collecting success, that takes away from the time that many women spend, and I would say most that are looking to partner, spend in the, in the skill of partnership, right? Because there's, there's a partnership requirement, there's a skill that's involved for both men and women to interact with each other and to be at peace with each other. And so anything or any person that came along who challenged my ability to be successful was immediately eradicated because, you know, one, you know, I'm kind of learning the feminist mantra of, you know, no man's going to put me barefoot pregnant in the house, especially if he makes less money than I do, because then I'd be reducing my lifestyle to be less than for somebody else. That that sounds stupid. (laughs) And then on top of that, there's the, you know, I don't want to spend my time and my energy being someone's sidekick (laughs) or support system or, help meet if you're a religious person. I don't want to be those things if it means that I'm not good enough the way that I am, because I always felt like there was um, just a devaluation of women in society in general. Like, you know, you're, you're important as a woman if you've got big boobs, if you're willing to have sex, if you're, you know, if you're all made up and you're good on somebody's arm, but you're not important as a woman if you are smart, capable, achieving things and, you know, becoming the first, uh, American vice president, like uh, we just experienced today of today's recording of all days. So those conflicting messages just made it impossible for me. And so I was unhappy about that, but I was also internally conflicted because part of me said, well, just be less of who you are and this love thing will be easy. And then the other part of me was like, what's wrong with these human beings that happen to be male that are telling me I have to be something other than God created me to be? And I just, I never could balance those two. And that made me, um, that made me internally inconsistent. And of course the messages then from society was there's something wrong with you. So 
if you just get over that whole career thing, if you get over that whole need to, you know, accumulate, oh, look at you, you're so obsessed with money, there's something wrong with you. You know, if if I'm getting that message over and over again, it really is impossible to have positive self-esteem in light of that. Wow. That's a lot, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> it is, right? Therapy has done a, a wonder of great things for me to work through all of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think that obviously someone like you who has achieved a great level of success and not, not that, you know, we're having a contest, but I think a lot of professional women experience that. I've heard them talk about it, not maybe don't say it as eloquently as you just did. But I think that's something in our society today where a lot of women have a similar issue is that I want to be successful. I have the drive and the desire to do these big, wonderful things with my life. But are men going to resent me? Am I undateable because of it? Do I intimidate men? And if I have to find someone who's more successful, makes more money, blah, 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 who the hell am I going to find to do that? Right. Um, You know, it's like almost an impossible expectation. So to put it simply, have you gotten over that? I'm putting that in finger quotes if you're listening. Have you gotten over that or is that, you know, still a thing? Like, how do you think about that today? Well, I'm not, I'm not rooted in anger about it. Like I think at one point I was, you know, I went through a really, really dark time in my life. And I talk, I talk about this a lot about going through depression and like, like seriously, not, not turning on the lights in the house, like, you know, living in the dust, you know, keeping, keeping myself like, you know, sleeping and not getting up and and that sort of thing. But, you know, that that time in my life really was the the anger was coming up about why can't I be why why did God break me? Why why was I made problematic? Why why was why was I like put here in this person that really urgently wants to create, urgently wants to build, urgently wants to do business and that's wrong. So there's something wrong with me, right? So when I got over there's something wrong with me, then it was the, okay, well, I'm fine the way that I am. I'm great the way that I am, right? All of us are God's creatures. So I'm just as good as anyone else. There's someone out there for me. And the realism of coming to that awareness when you're in your late 30s and already have amassed a certain amount of wealth and already have a certain public persona and, and all of those things there is the baggage and the weight that comes with it, but now it's a lot easier to reject people that can't deal with it. So, you know, once upon a time it was, okay, here's this person that can't deal with it, but look, he's great on paper. He's got, you know, he makes this much money and he, he owns this kind of house and he drives this kind of car. I got to go figure out how to be less than for this guy. And now it's okay, great. Here's a person up. Oh, this person doesn't like the whole work thing. So he's, he's a no, you know, and, and, and now I just release it because yeah, and this is kind of the side that I don't I don't think a lot of people like to talk about. You know, if you grow up and you marry young, right? If you date consecutively in your 20s, marry in your 20s into your 30s, divorce and start dating again, then you're in a state of being in perpetual relationship with someone else. So that's comfortable and that's common for you. And there's also kind of an idea of what's going to happen if I get too old and there's not someone there for me. My my belief is that I've been on this earth by myself for however long. So as much as I don't want to say it because it doesn't sound good to say, I'll be fine if no one comes along, right? I've, I've been doing this life thing now for 42 years, almost 43. We both will be 43 
or actually we both will be something next month. I won't say that you'll be 43. Oh, I'm but. okay. I'm, I'm 45. <laughs> I'll be 46. <laughs> Fourth month is coming up yes. and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, whatever life brings in the future, life brings in the future. I'm not going to be horribly broken if I never find, because I, I'm, I'm kind of past the point of seeking. I'm, I'm now kind of at the stage of life where I'm experiencing and I do the things that make me happy. And I do the things that make other people successful in life. And I contribute and that, that kind of fills me up. So yeah. the other part of life, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm a regular human being and, you know, I have needs just like everyone else, but if those needs don't get met in the way that a traditional relationship would create that for me, yeah, so be it. Well, that's an interesting point that you make is that if we're okay being, because not everybody actually is okay being alone, but that's another conversation. But if you're okay being alone now, why can't you be alone at 70 or 80? Because it's why, Yeah, right. <laughs> I, well, maybe it's just because we don't really know what it's like to be 70 or 80, right? Like well, I, yeah, I think I, of myself as this feeble old woman with a cane who can barely get around. Yeah, I want somebody. You're not going to be the feeble old lady in this CrossFit at 70. I don't, I don't see that happening to you. But I think, I think the fear of what happens when you don't have a partner is, is real. Because when I visit my parents, you know, I see them and they're so interdependent. Like I'm, the greatest worry that I have right now in my life is what's going to happen when one of them goes. because. They're both, thank God, knock wood, they're both in really good health right now, but, you know, they're getting older and of course stuff starts to break when you get older and, you know, they're so used to when one of them turns to the left, the other turns to the right and it balances itself Mm -hmm. out. But, you know, whenever something happens where I have to depend on another person, I do get a little, I get a little sensitive about that. So um, it was year before last, all of a sudden I'm driving and I was dating a guy at the time and something happened. Like I, I felt like a weird sensation. And then there was like a darkness on the side of my face and, you know, I kind of put it out of my mind, got home, went to bed the next day I'm driving and I put my hand up and I remember I could only see the palm of my hand and I could see the tip of my fingers. This part of my vision of, of, of my line of vision was missing. And what I learned was that I had a retinal detachment. So I, you know, I kind of casually mentioned to someone in my office, oh yeah, you know, like my hand is up and I kind of can't see my fingers moving. They're like, you need to go see somebody about that. And I'm like, like now, <laughs> right now. Okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, I knew it was serious, which I think is on my subconscious level of why I decided to say something, but I get to the doctor, the ophthalmologist says, oh, okay, we're going to send you to see a specialist. I don't know, but I think it's this, but I want you to see a specialist. And I was like, well, what does that mean? What is, what is a retinal detachment? Oh, it's nothing. They'll explain it to you. We're just going to schedule you an appointment to see the specialist. I'm like, okay, great. When are we going to do that? Tomorrow, tomorrow morning. You have to go tomorrow morning. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then I go to the specialist tomorrow morning. They're like, yeah, so you have a retinal detachment. We have to have surgery. I was like, surgery. Yeah, we have to have surgery and we're going to go ahead and schedule for surgery. So I want you to clear your schedule this afternoon. This afternoon, <laughs> yeah, we don't want you to go blind. So we need to take care of this now. So I'm like, okay, so this just went from, you got a little thing to, okay, you're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, so I called my best friend and I told her with doctor number one that I was going to a specialist. So she's like, so how'd the appointment go? I was like, ah! 
I'm going blind. She was like, I'll, I'll, I'll rearrange my schedule. Like you'll be fine. (laughs) And she did, but just the very act of, um, I had a bandage over my eye for a weekend. Um, and then when I went to the doctor and he removed the bandage, I had another bandage. And then eventually when they took the second bandage off, I had a, I had a, a, a little gas bubble in my eye. So I could partially see, but not really. And then eventually it faded, but I couldn't drive for a period of time. And I was taking Ubers and I was, I just, I felt very unsafe, you know, not being able to have my full vision, not knowing if somebody's going to see that I am impaired and like knock me over and like take a run for it with my purse. You know, I was, I was really going through something there. And I think about that when I think what happens if I get older and there's not somebody there and you know, so so that would normally put a level of pressure of I've got to get somebody. But yeah, for me, it's kind of like you know what I I have money. <laughs> you know what I mean, I'm doing a whole lot better than a lot of people in the world that in that same position they don't have someone because God forbid their husband or wife gets hit by a bus when they're 60 or 70 or whatever, and they worked a lower middle class lifestyle for their entirety of their life, and then now they're living on Medicare. Uh, or, you know, like their, their social security and Medicare is all they have and they're living hand to mouth and they can't afford to get some help in to take care of them or to help them. And thank God I am setting up my life in a way that that won't be my reality, but you know, it could be worse, right? There's always a worse. And if we look at the things that we don't have and focus on that, we will always be unhappy. Yeah. And that's, I really love to hear you say that, but you didn't always have that positive attitude, right? Like that's something you had to sort of train yourself to have. Yeah. And I still, I still work to keep it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not like I woke up happy. I used to tell people I didn't learn how to be happy until my mid thirties. Yeah. I think some people never learn to be happy. Yeah. That's sad, but true. <laughs> but I've always been really interested in your um, journey of personal development because I, I knew you a certain way and then I didn't see you for a long time. And then we started traveling in the same circles again and seeing each other more. And it was so noticeable to me that there was something different. There just was something different. You were happy, positive, optimistic. Um, it's kind of hard for me to articulate what it was, but there was something different. And I kind of want to talk to you about how that happened. Mm -hmm. So you talked about how you developed the um, addiction to alcohol. Um, Can you sort of start there? Like, at what point did you realize something's wrong? I cannot continue like this. Yeah. So it's odd that that I didn't know because... I, I helped people that were accused of child abuse and neglect. So most days of my weeks, I was reading psychological reports. I was reading substance abuse evaluations. I could easily diagnose a problem or condition in somebody else. And I didn't really realize that I was substance dependent. Like that's kind of where it starts, where, <clears throat> where you go home at night and have a glass of wine with dinner and you think, oh, okay, yeah, I'm just having a glass of wine with dinner, but you can't get through your night without it. And there are a whole lot of lawyers that fit into that category and they just don't call it substance dependence, right? Um, That kind of grew. And then the time that I kind of realized it happened, I was was working as a lawyer. Uh, I had it out with someone in management and ultimately I was fired. And I was fired from a place where 
I had basically relinquished my life for the practice of law. And not because I worked at a large law firm, but because I was so intensely, I felt so I felt so bad about myself. I had such low self-esteem that I wanted to prove myself. So the managing partner of this law firm was very much like a father to me. He looks like my father. He sounds like my father. He has that same urgent, you know, high standard kind of mindset. And so I was really, when I was fired from that job, I felt like I was put out of the family. So that sent me precipitously to the to the bottom of a bottle. I mean, when I wasn't working at the job that I got after that, I was drinking. And didn't really realize that that was an issue until one day it's like three o'clock in the morning. I wake up, I can't get back to sleep. I have a bottle of wine to get myself back to sleep. And then I overslept for court. And it's like, I don't know, 9.30 in the morning or whatever. I'm supposed to be at a court appearance at nine o'clock. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And look down and you know, my office had called me, my client had called me. So I kind of make up an excuse, smooth things over. That day was kind of the, yeah, now this is affecting other people, so this can't happen anymore. So called a friend of mine and told him I wasn't okay, and he got me to the Lawyer's Assistance Program in New Jersey, which is fabulous, and I credit them with a lot of positive changes in my life, and really went into a detox program for five days, left that program, put myself into voluntary group um, and individual coaching or um counseling, if you will, uh, at a substance abuse facility down in Red Bank. And I was there for about a month and a half before I said, okay, I think I got this under control. Now, mind you, I hadn't really stopped drinking. I had just like leveled it down. (laughs) So instead of having a bottle of wine a day, we went down to a glass. I would allow myself one glass before I went to bed and still realize that I was substance dependent, even though I didn't consider myself an alcoholic anymore, which of course, you know, just like get over it if you're still drinking, but like, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, flawed thinking because I wanted to hold on to this thing. And, you know, I had, I had confessed to my office and my, my then boss was fabulous. And he said, you know, we're going to support you through this. We're going to help you. Da, 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 da. So ultimately I'd given him authorization to talk to the lawyer's assistance program, but <clears throat> for some reason they didn't have the authorization that I signed on record. So he called them at some point and they called me and said, hey, your boss called and we don't have an authorization. Do you authorize us to speak to him? And I said, sure. And I signed the form and I was like, oh, this is the first time he must have called because you know, I, was, I gave him the authorization months ago. Like, why is he suddenly like reaching out to them now? So I went to him and I said, why are you suddenly reaching out to them now? And he said, well, you know, I'm concerned. And, you know, why are they telling you? And I said, well, because they, they said I didn't have an authorization. I signed one. He said, well, we need to have a conversation. So he sat me down. And what was interesting was it wasn't the, the partner that I worked for that was a family law partner is still an exceptional human being. Um, His partners were not necessarily my favorite people. Uh, But I sat down with him and one of his partners and they, they talked to me about how, oh, you're, you're, you're not yourself, you're not as social as you used to be, you're, you know, you don't eat lunch with the other women. And they were giving me surface level answers and they, cause they knew that something was wrong but there was no documentable thing that was wrong. It was like, I hadn't missed court, I hadn't shown up court, you know, to court drinking, I hadn't, I hadn't like gotten a client, you know, rights were not compromised. So I was like, I became very defensive and 
you know, it's one of those things, like I've grown a lot in how I work with clients in general, just because of my own story. And one of the things that I often go to when clients tell me, like if they call me and say, hey, you know, one of my, one of my associates didn't return a phone call. And then the client is like all incensed because they didn't return a phone call. And I'm like, well, how often do you talk to these associates? Oh, I haven't talked to them in months. And, you know, and then I go in the records and I'm like, you talked to them last Thursday, you talked to them last Tuesday, you talked, you know, you talked to them the weekend before. And what's really going on when people are like grasping at straws is that there's a feeling that you're not in this with me, you're not on my side. Yeah. But they can't have a I don't feel like you like me conversation because that sounds a little superfluous. So they go to data that just happens to be false, right? Yeah. So I didn't know that at the time. I wasn't thinking that, but that was really what I was, you know, feeling with my boss because I was able to counter all of the data that they were getting. And especially less less so about my actual boss and more about his partners. His partner was like, well, you know, we, we don't see you in the office anymore. I was like, how many hours did I bill for you last year? Like even, even in my drunkest state, I'm billing 1,800 hours a year. And I'm told when I went to this firm that, well, our associates do 1,600 to 1,800, give or take. It really depends just as long as they get their work done. And I later learned that that was not true, that no associate had ever even built 1600. So I'm over here cranking out the 1800 and I'm like, how dare you get upset? And how many, how many, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars am I generating for you people again? And like, I just became like a, a real something. Right. (laughs) And, you know, but in that moment, I decided I was going to get sober just so that I could leave. (laughs) Okay. That was kind of the, you know, what? I don't like the idea that somebody can call me on the mats and not appreciate all that I do for them and confront me when I'm doing all these things over here. Now, the reality is looking back in hindsight, they had every right to be concerned. They had every right to address the issue. They didn't address it the way that I would have liked, but most lawyers don't get training on how to deal with substance impaired lawyers in their career. So I don't fault them for that. But nevertheless, that was it. January 12, January 24, 2012, that was my sober date. Never touched it again. Just because of that meeting, I was like, you know what? My F you to the world is that I'm not doing this anymore. And I've never touched it since. Wow. Congratulations. That that really is a major accomplishment. It is. Thank you. Thank you. It is. So that's, I love that you have this very specific defining moment and that um, is so vivid in your memory. Yeah, but you know, the good thing about the moment is that the moment wasn't, it wasn't an aha moment where I said, I am being treated unfairly and I'm going to now go out and do great things. I was still very flawed in my thinking at that time, right? Because, you know, and as a law firm owner, I have never dealt with, you know, an alcoholic attorney in my law firm, but I've dealt with other behavioral issues or problems. And when I confront someone with, here are the facts and data that supports that this is a problem, if I get pushback or attitude, I can address that very differently now, having gone through the experience of giving that. But I also think, you know, most people wouldn't be approaching it the way that I'm approaching it because they would go to the, you know, well, I'm the boss and I get to tell you and how dare you and whatever. But it also, in that moment, it made me realize how much I knew my worth. Because by the time I left that law firm, I had a $500,000 book of business. So even though I was starting a law firm at $0, I knew that as soon as I told 43 of the 48 clients I was handling at the time, hey, I'm going down the street. All of them were child abuse cases. They couldn't stay at the law firm. (laughs) 
There was yeah. nobody who knew how to handle those cases. So I had kind of, without planning it, created a little silo of protection around myself so I would be able to support myself. And I also realized, okay, I'm at this office. This office didn't have the best AR policies. I'm the one who's creating a policy for who we're going to call and what we're going to say. And I'm the one that's collecting hundreds of thousands of dollars of their AR that preceded even me. And I'm the one that's putting together, all right, we ought to be meeting as a staff at least once a month. So let's have a staff meeting and like make sure everybody knows what's going and all the buses are moving on time and all that stuff. And, you know, hey, it's a holiday. We ought to be doing something nice. So Easter, I'm throwing out candy. And Christmas, I'm putting out tinsel. And I'm doing these things to create a culture and a community and advancing their business. And the only thing that I wanted was them to say, wow, what an asset you are. If I had had that, I would have gladly worked for less money. I would have gladly advanced their business. It really wasn't about having my name in light. It was about feeling validated. And now I recognize the power of that. So when I am dealing with team members on my firm, <laughs> I make sure that we schedule the ahas and the atta girls and that we express gratitude and we tell people how much they mean to us. Because if you don't give people that, you know, at some point, if they have a, a wounded enough ego, they will pick themselves up and leave and go elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about that more. So it sounds like you were on that upward trajectory of personal development. I feel like that's such a generic broad term, but um, for lack of a better expression right now. So you're, it sounds like your self-esteem was improving at that point. You were recognizing your worth and your value because maybe the Allison a few years prior to that wouldn't have had those thoughts like, Hey, I'm bringing in X amount of dollars. You know, I have value. You're not seeing it. So what's interesting is we talked a little bit earlier about the idea of self-esteem being compartmentalized. I still did not value myself as a person, but I did value myself as a lawyer. Okay. So in other words, I knew by that time that I was starting to, and I had evidence to support this. So I didn't, it wasn't like I came to an awareness on my own and suddenly said, ah, maybe I'm worth something. It was, I was starting to generate cases um, from, you know, the largest law firms in the state of New Jersey. I was starting to be called by the news media. I was starting to have a reputation. I would come into a courtroom and say my name for the appearance and the the court staff would be like, oh, it's you. And so like I I started to get external signs that I was more than I thought I was. And that's what was buttressing the I can do this. I can do this lawyering thing. But I still didn't think I was a worthy person, didn't think I was didn't think that I was worth much in the grand scheme of things. So I felt like the only thing that I really had was my lawyering. So I was like, if you're not going to appreciate the only thing that God put me here, like I thought really I'm a, wa- I'm a waste of a person except for this thing that I do over here, which is lawyer. So if you're not going to value the lawyering thing, that means I'm really worth nothing. And if I'm worth nothing to you, I don't belong here. My self-value, my self-esteem that includes all parts of myself, my spiritual self, my emotional self, my physical self, my, uh, my human self, my, my personality all of those things about myself, I came to appreciate probably, as I said before, late 30s. And that was a journey of really understanding why I thought the way that I thought and having someone not just confront or cross-examine or challenge me on my thoughts, but ask me to really examine my thoughts as to why, why I believed that another person who I might show grace to, who I might give my all to, who I might say is a worthy human, because I could... I could look at a substance abused, uh, substance abusing parent or a mentally unstable spouse 
and treat them with the same level of respect and regard and care and concern as I would for any other person without so much as a thought about it. Like I never looked down on other people that had those problems. And I would say, well, Mm. hmm, well, why is it that if I have the exact same problems and I have this career and I have these other things about me that I've done that help people, like why, why don't I value myself? I don't understand. And not understanding is the first part of making me, it made me intuitively curious about why I was thinking the way that I was. And I, then I started asking deeper questions and working on the, the self-esteem piece. And how did you do that? I mean, I know some of the things you did, but I'd like to hear you describe that whole experience and what you did. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a combination of things. Um, so the, the first major thing was, and we have this in common, as I started working with David Nagel. So um, David calls himself a wealth coach, but essentially it's life coaching. And uh, when people hear life coaching, they think, great, somebody's going to tell me how to have a great life. Isn't that, isn't that, <laughs> right? um, that was kind of my thought about it when I first heard it. But then I, I started listening to him and, you know, I'll tell you, I had a, I had a negative experience with a coach um, not associated with David and I don't want to use this person's name. But I had negative experience there and this person referenced David. So I said, huh, maybe, maybe there's something like, because there's some reason why I'm choosing to experience this person. Mm-hmm. Why would I choose to experience this person? Maybe it was so that I could find out about this other person. So I Googled David's name and a whole host of YouTube videos came up and I just started listening to the videos and I was mesmerized. And he talks about universal law and he has this very deep, mellifluous voice. <laughs> it's like a, the, the kind of voice that just soothes you instantaneously. And I thought, wow, what is he saying that like is just kind of resonating? And there was so much about, um, about the different ways that and it, it's not Christianity, it's not Judaism, it's not Islam, it, it's not religion, it's spirituality. And it was about how, um, how God or source or the universe functions in the world. And it's not haberdashery or fantasy that was passed down from person to person over the years, but it really is the way that the world works. And so when you start thinking about the way that the world works from things like the law of polarity, that there's an opposite to everything and it's equal and opposite. And if there's a problem, there's equally a solution. And you start retrofitting your life to these laws, you say, yeah, that is true. And there were so many things like that with David where I would listen to something he would say that would just be kind of a a simple but poignant point. And then I would think about my life and say, huh, yes, that is absolutely true. And like, and I found that nothing that he taught me about universal law was ever disproven or um, negated by my life experience. Everything positive or negative could be fit into these laws. So I started studying universal law And through that, I started to release some of the things that I was holding on to. Like I was holding on to anger at my parents because, you know, why did my brother who was two and a half years older than me and, you know, for all intents and purposes, very smart, but very uninterested in school. And why did he get the pass? And why was I held to such a high standard? And like all of that, why, 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 why was just victim, right? It was just victim stamping. And I asked myself why, why I, why I couldn't let go of the anger at them. And I had to kind of process through that, but through therapy, and I was going to therapy consistently since 2011, all the way up through 2018. But over that time period, 
coaching was overlapping it. So every time I would learn something new, I would come back and talk to it at kind of home base, which was my therapist. And she would say, yeah, you do have this way of doing this. Like I have seen this. And she would give me verification and validation of the fact that everything that I was learning was not just mysticism. It was, it was really the truth at the heart of who I was just couched in different languaging. And so David took me through a whole lot of exercises over an extended period of time. This was not, this was not like a one and done weekend. Uh, yeah. This was various retreats. I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on coaching. I want to be very candid about that so that when people shock and awe at the $17.50 a month that I will try to charge them for a service and I tell them I'm going to transform your life and it's worth a lot more than that, I don't say that because I'm trying to make a buck. I say that because it's true <laughs> and I very much practice what I preach. But I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars getting to the root of who I was so that I could become the person that I am now. Yeah. It was an investment in yourself. It is. And it's, and the process is almost as intoxicating as the results you get. Yeah. Once you start working on yourself and you start learning more about yourself, like even this past year, like I haven't really shared this publicly before. So you're, you're very special in this regard, but this year I, or this past year, I had a tarot card reading and I had my numerology chart prepared and I, Um, met with a shaman and all of these different modalities of learning more about myself that I was allowed to, or that I allowed myself to experience on this quest to get more familiar with who I am, because the more I love, learn myself, the more I love myself. And isn't it amazing for you to think of how you are today and then think of who you were like 10 or 15 years ago? Try not to think too much about her because I don't like that person that much. You know, I wasn't a bad person. Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't, you know, when I think back on who I was, how I was, I wasn't like, you know, most people wouldn't describe me as somebody they hate to be around. Like there, there are some attorney adversaries that people say, oh my God, here they come. I wasn't that, but I was closed off to the world. You know, I had kind of a a protective barrier around me. So nobody really got in. Um, I had the chronic mask on. So I was always, you know, putting on a good face. I was very, um, there was a level of arrogance that I had about my lawyering ability because while I recognize that I am a better lawyer than most lawyers, and I say that without any degree of arrogance, I just know what lawyering is and I study lawyering so I know what my skill level is. I also held that as kind of the I'm better than somebody way of getting self-esteem. And I think our world does teach us Self-esteem is how good do you look compared to someone else or how much money do you make compared to someone else or how much, how much, how much do you have in the bank compared to someone else as opposed to how much do you have relative to what you used to have? You know, what do you look like now compared to what you used to look like? How are you evolving? How are you getting better? How are you growing? And so when I compare myself against myself, I can't help but love myself because there's so much progress that I've made. But if I compared myself to other people, there's always going to be somebody who's thinner or smarter or richer or whatever. Like there's never yeah. going to be a lack of people that have more of what I desire because I, the only way I can desire it is to see it in existence. So the very fact that it exists in order to inspire me to create more means I have less than someone. So that means you'd, you'd always be on a perpetual cycle of looking for your next best thing if you don't let go of comparing yourself to other people. And that was probably the greatest freedom that I created in my life. Well, I like something that you just said earlier is um, 
I don't remember your exact words, but you're in happy, enjoying life now. Because so many people, myself included, feel like, oh, well, once I have X, Y, and Z, you know, and once my tax return has a certain dollar amount on it and I have that house and that car and that whatever, then I'm going to be okay. I can rest and I will be happy. <laughs> but what are you doing in the meantime? What is this? You know, what are, how are we existing in the meantime? Well, so I would love to say that I am like fixed. <laughs> yes, you're <laughs> cured. I'm cured and I never <laughs> ever think about, you know, wanting the next thing. Like I am a very ambitious person and I'm always looking to better my best. But there's, there's a unique odd thing that happens when you get to be okay with who you are. Because one of the things that I, and I hate to almost admit this now because it sounds kind of crazy unless you've experienced it, but if you, you know, for a long time, I was driven by running away from what I did not like about myself. So, you know, I only make X dollars. I'm going to run to be more successful so I can be something other than this unsuccessful thing over here. So I was always running away from the less than feeling that I had. And then at some point I got to a place where I was very successful. Like, you know, I think I've told you I've grown this law firm very quickly into a lot of resource. So from zero to a multi-million dollar law firm in three and a half years, three and a half years later, I, I took a deep breath and was like, ah, okay, now we got plenty of money. We got plenty of people around us. We're not working like a slave. This is good. Right. And that lasted for a couple of weeks. And then I was like, who the hell only works five hours a week? This is crazy, right? And <laughs> I, I got to do something with my life. And then, you know, I, I, I went into the direction of coaching. But, you know, even still in that moment, I pursued coaching out of having an interest in, a desire for, a need to help people. I wanted to pour into people. I wanted to create something. I wanted to build. I did not want to run away from the person that I was anymore. Yeah. So those two experiences could coexist. I could both be happy standing still and be happy looking for the next thing. And there was no friction between those two things. So if I got the goal, great. If I mm-hmm. achieved the next milestone, wonderful. Made the next million, perfect. But if I didn't, I'd still be okay. Yeah. Because I enjoyed the process. And that's what it's about. Yeah. And you know, something you said is striking to me too, is that, um, I think it's something that David always says is it's easy to look back on yourself and say, Oh God, who is that girl? You know, I could look on some really dumb things I did in my early twenties and, um, which I won't get into now because we're here to talk about you, Allison. <laughs> but those dumb things, Christina, I yeah, think oh God. Like, not, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready. Just stupid shit. And where I just think, God, why did I do that? You know, who was that girl? Why did she think so little of herself? And, you know, feeling uncomfortable with myself as I think about it. But David always says that, you know, wherever you were in life, wherever you are in life, those things all had to happen to bring you where you are now. And whatever you are now is bringing you to the next thing. So I think there is some comfort in that. Well, and you have to see that in your own life, right? Yeah. Because if nothing else, you know, the way that you're able to engage with people, the way that you're able to interview people, I mean, you're a very good interviewer. And I don't, I don't say that just to like pat you on the head. Like not everybody that has a podcast, and I've been on a lot of podcasts, not everybody that has a podcast is a really good interviewer. They go through their list of questions, 
it's not a real conversation. It's question mm-hmm. answer. Um, it's dry. Or the guest makes the show. Like you really, you've gone through some stuff. So you can relate to people when they talk about their stuff. And that's what makes you, you know, the, the, the phenom that you are now. Thank you, Allison. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I think, unfortunately, you have to get old, old, like we're not really old. <laughs> but <laughs> to you got to lose the 20s, right? When things yeah. are young and perky. <laughs> you can perk things up again. You know? <laughs> I know. That's a great plastic surgeon you've had <laughs> on your show. Yes. We know yes. you can start things up again. <laughs> yes, you can. So um, I don't know. I think I am appreciating that more is that um, I am where I am. Yeah, I did some stupid shit back in the day. And I'll probably still do some more stupid shit as we go on. But <laughs> you learn from those things. And another thing I wanted to comment on, I it's in, something interesting that you said, because I heard this on another podcast. Uh, can't remember which one it was. But a psychiatrist who isn't just, you know, doling out pills, but is actually talking about some of the things we're talking about here said, if you're uber ambitious and driven, you might want to consider, are you really running towards something or are you running away from something? Yep. And it was really the first time I'd ever considered that. Um, Well, and I'll tell you how, you know, the easy way to know is if you think back to those moments where you were urgently trying to get somewhere and you got there, how long did the high last? Yeah. And I'll tell you, I would hit highs in my life and they would be like a nanosecond, right? From the time that I was in middle school, I wanted a Lexus. That to me meant something. I will have arrived. And then life happened and I started a law firm and I went out into partnership with a partner that was not the right choice for me, even though my partner and I are really cool to this day, but it wasn't the right choice for us. And so we separated ourselves and we separated ourselves precipitously because we were urgently trying to solve the problem of being together. So we said, all right, 30 days, we're done. And 30 days, I had 50 some odd clients that I had to still service. Now I didn't even have a partner to help me. I didn't have an associate that was going to help me. I didn't have a secretary. I was going to be completely on my own. So I had to hire people. I had to like set up all my licenses, setting up a law firm that had that much revenue, that many client servicing needs, you know, on 30 days notice was very, very uh, challenging. So I had that experience. And I remember <laughs> as I was going through that experience, my thought was, oh my God, I'm never going to get through this. I'm never going to get through this. I'm going to collapse under the weight of this. Right. And I didn't collapse under the weight of it, right? It was it was a challenge, but I didn't collapse under the weight of it. But as I went through that experience, we have kind of the flip side, which is, <laughs> you know, when you have more time and you have more people, you have more resources, you can do more. But I didn't see that. I was kind of like just stuck in the, this is where I am. I, you know, it's, it's ne- I can't believe I did this. It's never going to get better. And, you know, if I really think back over that moment, if I think back over that period of my life, I could say, that period of my life prepared me for the stuff of somebody walks into my office and they've had an emotional issue over their weekend and they quit. Or um, like now lawyers quitting, lawyers lawyers having to be terminated, that does not phase me. It, does, it, it doesn't get into the weeds because I've had the traumatic experience with myself. So now other people's trauma is never going to be my trauma. And I can just stay thankful that, okay, 
it's unfortunate that person's going through something. It's not my stuff. It's not my yeah. stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Not my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So a day, something else David says a lot is that when you change it, it obviously there's like a ripple effect. It affects other people around you too. And sometimes as a result, you lose those people because whatever that dynamic was that existed between you that served both of you, mm-hmm. it's been disturbed. So that person may go away. I remember one time I asked him, well, how do you, how do you get rid of these people that are toxic around you and not serving you any longer? And he said something really interesting that I didn't even see coming. And he said, you won't have to. They'll leave. Themselves. Yeah. So did you experience that as you've developed? So I did. Um, I did. And I'll tell you what, what's interesting about it. Because um, most people think about toxicity from the perspective of an abusive spouse or a really hostile, nasty friend. Um, I never had those things, right? My my best friend has been my best friend now for you know well into the decades, uh, and you know she has been more negative at different times in her life. And there are times where I pull away, and when she feels me pulling away, she knows that that means like okay, we need to we need to get on the same page. So in mm-hmm. some ways, my evolution has been a help to her. But you know beyond that, the people that have typically left my life because of my evolution have been employees. And what, what tends to find itself into my orbit, because my, my world is really business-based and a lot of people don't understand that that actually is my, my joy, my Zen. I'm not suggesting that every person has to be like all business all the time. It's not because of ambition anymore. It's really just where I find my happy and love to create. But when I would have um, evolutionary processes, you know, when you meet people, you meet people where they are, but you also meet them where you are. And you don't realize that until you start to look at yourself in mirror. And one of the things that David gave me early on that was like an excellent exercise is there was a, a book by a woman named Byron Katie. She goes by Katie, but her name is actually Byron. Her first name is Byron. And the book is Loving What Is. And one of the exercises that she has in there is flipping so that you write down all of the things that you dislike about a person. And then you say, I am in front of them. So just think about the person that triggers you the most, right? The person that you, you can't stand them. You're frustrated by them. They, you know, they come in late, they leave early. They're not dependable, whatever, right? You put these things down and you characterize them. This person is histrionic. They're undependable. They're not reliable. They're not, um, they're, they're not, they're not true to their word. And then you put, I am. I am histrionic. I am unreliable. I am not true to my word. And what you'll find is when you say those things, you're either going to say those things and immediately feel attacked, meaning there's some truth to it and you don't want to own it, or you're going to resist those things. You're going to say, I'm not those things, right? She's those things or he's those things. I am not those things. The visceral reaction and trying to push it away is typically your way of becoming defensive about something that you either do and don't want to own or something that you don't want to become because there's a high level of consternation or history of judgment or whatever around it. So it could be if you, if the person is lazy and you say, I am lazy and you viscerally reject that, it might be that you're really not lazy, but it could be that you have a strong judgment around it. So it's not just, I look at this person's behavior objectively and I say, this person is lazy, I would like to change that, or I would like them to have a new lens. 
you look at that, you become judgmental around it. So now you're judging the person instead of the behavior. And there's a, there's a certain level of dysfunction in that. And so when you start to see these patterns of who you are and who you attract, you realize that the only way for you to attract better people is for you to be a better person. Mm. So now the people that I attract in my law firm are inherently better people. Like you can just like, before I will even entertain an interview with somebody, we get on the phone with them. Energetically, I can just tell if the person's not that, not our kind of people. So later in, you know, fourth quarter of last year, we needed to add up. We needed more people on the team because we started to experience growth. So we added two lawyers and it took us from the time we placed the ad to the time we, you know, got the resumes in, did the screening, went through the process, checked the references. All of that took us about a week and a half. Oh my God. I thought you were going to say like months. No, it took (laughs) us a week and a half because there's a process, right? So whether I follow the process by checking references over two weeks or I check them all in one day, I'm following a process. There's a process whether I screen the resumes all over a week or I screen them all over an hour, I have a process for screening them. So all of the process remained intact. The decision then was based on the data. It wasn't based on, this is how I feel about the person because I could separate my feeling and stay in the energy of, this is who came into my world. This is what that person offers. Here are their strengths and weaknesses and what does the information tell me? Because I'm not invested in the outcome based on the wound that's being healed by adding somebody or the wound that's being triggered by having the antidote of what I am. So if I, if I feel like I'm not smart enough and I hire somebody who I think is really smart, then I'm filling a void in myself rather than filling a need in my business. That's a whole lot of self-awareness right there, Allison. It is. It is a whole lot of self-awareness, but it makes life better. It does. It, It makes friendships better. It makes relationships better. Like every person that comes into your life is not meant to be there forever, but they are always meant to show you something about yourself. Yeah. Wow. I feel like there's been so many mic drop moments in this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) One of them that I I love, I think I'm going to put it on a piece of paper and put it on on my desk. Um, The way to attract better people is to be a better person. Yeah. It's so true. It sounds so simple and basic, but I didn't think of it myself. (laughs) So when you say it, it sounds like, duh. (laughs) Come on, Christina. You're a divorce attorney, right? We say it all the time. A 10 doesn't marry a two. Yes, true. Right? And and whenever I've said that before, you know, I've said it to people that have like left bad relationships and they will say, oh, my spouse was abusive. My spouse was nasty. My spouse cheated. And they say all these things about their spouse. And I would say, what is it in you that attracted that person? And they would be like, well, you know, what do you, what do you mean? Like, you know, you're, are you blaming me? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not blaming you. I'm giving you the gift of personal responsibility. Because when you look at yourself and you say, there was something in me that attracted that person and you heal that, you don't have to experience a person like that again. But if you just mm-hmm. go from one abusive relationship and you end it and you blame that person and then you go to the next abuser and you end it and you blame that person and you complete that cycle over and over and over again, you're always just going to be in one form of abusive relationship versus another. Instead of saying, what did I, who am I being? What, what is it in me that is allowing this person to find a victim in me? so that they will then know that I am the person that they should attach to so that they can enact their behavior. So I tell people all the time, I have, I have been dating, I'm 42 years old. I've been dating since I was 15 years old. I've never dated somebody who's cheated on me. 
Hmm. Most people are like stunned by that. Well, Khloe Kardashian cannot say that. <laughs> no, a whole lot of people can't say that. Most, most females cannot say that, but I can say it because I have all, and it's not because I'm superior, right? I'm not, I'm not the prettiest chick. I'm not the skinniest chick. I'm not the most, the most wonderful, submissive, agreeable, happy, whatever. Yeah. But I have always energetically attracted men that are like my father. And my father is one that is very, very, very loyal. My father would sooner, um, my, my father would sooner end his relationship than cheat on my mother. Other than the fact that he adores her, he just like finds that behavior repugnant. Yeah. So yeah. that's who I attract. Now that doesn't mean that men who are, you know, who are inclined to cheat haven't been attracted to me, but I am not authorizing them into my life. So when that type of person comes up, I feel the energy. I say, yeah, there's something about this person that doesn't quite feel right. And it's the same thing with really, if you think about it, any type of behavior that's maladaptive, right? You know, if if I meet somebody and, you know, I'm going to take it back to a work context so that it's a little bit easier for people to understand. Because I, I coach lawyers on this with hiring all the time. Like if you meet a lawyer and you say, there's something about this person, you know, they answer all the questions, right? There's something wrong with this person. Sometimes there's something wrong is that they have something right that you're not involved enough to handle. And sometimes mm-hmm. the something wrong is that there really is something wrong. So how do you know the difference? Well, you have to ask yourself the question, what is it that I'm finding distasteful about this person, right? What is it about this person that's causing an issue? And a lot of times what it is, is something that you are finding. So I find that that loving what is experience, you know, that, that, you know, that experiment, if you will, that exercise from Byron Katie's work, just listing down all the things that you like about the person and then list out the things that you dislike about the person and for the things that you dislike about the person. And these should be things, by the way, that come from the person as well from all data about the person. So it can be a previous employer gave you a review that had some not so positive things. It could be that you that you ordered a proceeding tape or a transcript of a hearing that that person conducted and you heard something or read something that says, hmm, not the best there. And you just don't know why. But you figure it out from getting all of your extraneous information, including your involvement with that person, and write I am in front of all of the descriptions that you would have that are negative. And when you do that and you have a strong reaction to the person, I want you to ask yourself, is the strong reaction to I am fill in the blank because I have that behavior that I need to heal within myself. So in other words, it's not that this person being aggressive is a problem. It's the problem for me because I either was taught that being aggressive is wrong or because I am aggressive in myself and that's something I don't like about myself. Mm. So you're then judging the person based on a characteristic and how it fits within a role versus judging the person based on how it feels for you based on something you need to work out. That's really big. That's something that you can do with all of your relationships, right? Personal work relationships. I'm going to do that today. If you don't hear from me in a while, check in. (laughs) I don't want people like contacting me after the podcast and be like, okay, so Christina like cut me out of her life. And I know that you're to blame for that. Nobody's heard from Christina in a while. Heard from her. You know, it's, it's that witch that she had on her show last week that like, you know, eclipsed her from our lives. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. We're nearing the end of our time together, at least right now. 
Thank you for sharing all of this. We didn't even get to even touch on, you know, how you built your law firm, how you built the law firm mentor, and maybe we could do that another day. But um, I think you talk enough about what your um, coaching business is. And if people are interested in hearing more about that, they should absolutely follow you on social media and listen to your podcast. I'll have links to that in the show notes. Um, but before you leave me, I would like to ask you, and I don't didn't don't think I give you a heads up on this, but I don't I think you'll be able to answer this pretty easily. Can you share a couple of books that made the biggest impact on you in your lifetime? Wow. So I love books. There are so many to choose from. So the one that struck me in the last decade, I would say, that's kind of like the over the head book was Relentless by Tim Grover. So Relentless, for anybody that doesn't know it, is um, the, the sports trainer for some of the most elite athletes in the world, like Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade and Michael Jordan. Um, he, he wrote a book that's really about the the psychology that he works with on his players, because, you know, th these, these athletes have the, the greatest talent in the world, right? They, they don't, yes, you can tell them more reps on this, on this piece of equipment or more, more squats or more, more dark, you know, bump dumbbells or whatever, but they know how to train their bodies, right? The, the trainer is getting into that one to 2% elitism that comes from the psychology of how they look at what they're doing and how they, quickly pivot around the problems. So, um, but what, you know, in that there was, there was something about the relentless nature of a person, a person and how a person can have a goal and just be rigid and dogmatic about it. And, and everyone and everything else be damned when they're on that goal. And that wasn't just inspiring to me in so many ways that defined me because when I would think about myself and, and I get a lot of the feminized messages of, well, you're supposed to want to collaborate and hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And I'm like, I want to do it myself. I want to be by myself. I want to create by myself. It isn't that I don't want to bring other people in. It's that that's where my zone of genius is. And he talks about that both being an individual and learning how to be a part of a team in a way that was just very symbiotic for me. So that was my first one. The second one, God, there are so, 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 so many. I know. Uh, the second one I would probably say is Trust by Jan Levanzant. So ironically, I found this book long before David recommended it recently in a program that he did. But this book is about the, the, the basic, the four trusts, trusting God, trusting self, trusting others, and trusting spirit. Um, and, and I just... I, I remember reading it and it had so many elements of how we build trust with ourselves that was like, yeah, that's what I did in order to deal with. So there was a lot there that I could say that was concrete. It was made concrete for me by hearing her verbalization of it versus, you know, again, that unconscious competency of, oh, I've improved in this, but I didn't necessarily know how or why. Yeah. And it was kind of reverse engineering it through the process of reading her book that really helped me to, to share a little bit more of the tools and strategies with other people about how they could advance their lives. Well, thank you. And I happen to know that you were on Goodreads, if anybody <laughs> knows what that is. It's sort of like an online bookshelf forum where you can put all the books you've read. Um, I stalk you on there, so please keep it updated. And uh, 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Alice. And I really enjoyed this. I learned a lot more about you and um, I really appreciate you giving me your time so generously. You are welcome. It was a lot of fun. I think it was a great conversation, even though it didn't go where it was intended to go. It went exactly where it needed to go. Yes. Those are the best ones. That's why I don't script these. I keep them very organic. You never know where they're going to go. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.